0: Hey, welcome back to That's Helpful with me, Ed Stop Now today, do you know those people who are incredibly clever, yet they make decisions that are absolutely baffling? You know the ones, clever people who believe in conspiracy theories, or those highly educated colleagues who constantly make silly decisions? Well... The research says that smart people may actually be more susceptible to irrational thinking and making mistakes. This is called the intelligence trap An award winning science journalist, David Robson, has written a book about it. You might remember him from our previous episodes about the expectation effect. David has the knack of breaking down really complicated science into super interesting, accessible ways. So you're you're really gonna enjoy this. So today we're gonna talk more about this trap, the famous figures who've fallen foul of it throughout history, and how you and your organization can avoid it. David, thank you so much for coming back. I'm so grateful to you.
1: Thanks for the lovely introduction. And you know, it's a real pleasure to be chatting about the intelligence trap.
0: Yeah, it's such a pleasure. And if anybody's got this far and they haven't listened to our episode on the expectation effect, I'll link it in the show notes because you really have to listen to it because that is life changing, life changing stuff. And so tell me, how did you first become aware of the intelligence trap?
1: Yeah, I mean, this really came from my experience as a science journalist. Um, You know, I'd be interviewing these super smart people and, you know, hearing a lot in the newsroom about, you know, people who've won the Nobel Prize. Um, You know, obviously amazing achievements, you know, they've changed our understanding of the mind and the universe and the human body. But then you just have to probe just a little bit into their kind of personal lives or their other beliefs. And you'd find that actually they had some, you know, very strange (laughs) behaviours. So one man that comes to mind is Kerry Mullis. He came up with the uh, polymerase chain reaction. So that's what's used in all of the COVID PCR tests. But um, it's much broader than that. You know, it's really fundamental to so much of medicine and biological research. Um, You know, it was obviously uh, an astonishing discovery that he made. And apparently he just, you know, it just came to his mind while he was driving through California one day. Wow. Um, but then it's like you go on YouTube and you look up his videos of where he's talking about AIDS and HIV. He denied that the HIV virus actually caused AIDS. Oh, um, despite, you know, this was at the time when there was overwhelming evidence, you know, in the mid 90s. He believed in astrology, which you wouldn't expect someone who's kind of scientifically rational to to believe in. Um, he claimed... Uh, to have seen this kind of glowing raccoon in the middle of a forest that you thought was some kind of alien. I mean, to Um, me,
0: that sounds legitimate, (laughs) David, come on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's more legitimate than me, AIDS denialism, actually.
0: (laughs) The glowing raccoon, we'll give him that. Right.
1: (laughs) Um, You know, climate change denialist, all of these things. It's like, It seemed like he was deliberately contrarian, but, you know, he was spreading these messages in his autobiography, you know, on these um, videos, these interviews. It's like, it really was fascinating to me how someone could have been so smart with his own particular field of research, but then, you know, you go outside of that, and actually he's just seemed to be incapable of appraising the evidence.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it, because I think as we're discussing this, if you know you're listening to this and you're anything like me you'll be immediately thinking of like 10 people who you've experienced throughout your life and like oh my god yeah 100% this is absolutely a thing one of the other people you mentioned is Arthur Conan Doyle the author author of Sherlock Holmes he's a great example isn't he
1: he is I mean you know what I find fascinating about him is that you know he had training in science again Um, he was a doctor but then you know, in the Sherlock Holmes books, he really demonstrates how, um, you know, he understood all of the principles of rational thinking and logical deduction and, you know, this idea that you don't come to a conclusion before you've looked at the evidence and you have to eliminate all other possibilities. Um, but then in his private life, he just wasted so much time and money supporting these, uh, you know, mediums, people who claim they could speak to the dead. Um and, you know, he even believed in this kind of hoax from Yorkshire in the UK where these girls came, um, they cut out pictures of fairies. Uh, <laughs> stuck them it's together. actually
0: really cute, the story of what they did, isn't it? Oh, but the I fact think that he was is. sucked in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so many, quite, you know, a lot of people were sucked in, but there were also a lot of skeptics. Um, but, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle, like with the mediums, like when his friends were telling him, like, you know, there are all these other explanations, the same with the fairies, you know, people were saying, look, you can actually see the pins like through the cardboard. Um, But he was, you know, creating all of these elaborate reasons why he was right and they were wrong. So when there was, you know, someone pointed out what looked like a pin in one of these photos of those fairies, he was like, oh no, that's just like the belly button. And it shows that actually um, they were born, you know, in the same way that humans are. And it's a sign of the umbilical cord. Um, you know, same with these mediums. I mean, he even thought, he was friends with Houdini, the escapologist, and had this crazy idea that Houdini was a fairy. And like, um <laughs> Houdini was like, no, no, I'm not. It's like, uh, no magic is possible. Um, but Arthur Conan Doyle was like, he was like, well, that is what the kind of thing a fairy would say. <laughs> and so he'd drawn these new theories of electromagnetism and, you know, he thought that Houdini was somehow managing to kind of disappear into the ether and back again, drawing on all of these scientific ideas that were kind of in discussion at the time. So he was really using his intelligence and his scientific knowledge, actually, to kind of power his irrational beliefs. And that's One of the things that I learned when researching the expectation effect is that that's really common. And we call that motivated reasoning. Um, So you have like a belief that you really want to hold on to. You know, you've got some emotional attraction to it. And then rather than using your intelligence to kind of weigh up the different possibilities and come to the logical conclusion, you just use your intelligence to rationalize and defend your belief.
0: Yeah, which when you explain it like that, like it makes so much sense as to why we as individuals probably get sucked into this. I mean, like maybe not to the extent of glowing raccoons and forest fairies, but you know, like beliefs that we hold that we want to believe are true. It's so easy to understand that we could kid ourselves and use that intelligence to create perhaps even more convincing arguments for what we want to believe in
1: right exactly and so that's why you know i don't think this is limited to you know these few case studies i think like so many people are susceptible to this and mm-hmm. we know say in politics that things like intelligence and scientific knowledge and political knowledge like you'd hope that the more educated people more the more they'd be able to come to some kind of consensus on Something like climate change or gun control in the U.S. You should think they'd all be appraising the same evidence and coming to the same mm-hmm. conclusions, but actually the opposite is true. The more people know, the more they, the more sophisticated their reasoning, the more polarized they become. And it's through, again, through that process of motivated reasoning that what they're doing is just filtering all that information to support their point of view and gathering more and more evidence to support their point of view, whatever that may be. And that's what's driving people apart um so that you know i think that's really a serious consequence but also in our personal lives i think it's like you know if you've made a bad investment or you know you're in a bad relationship you know all of these kinds of things um you know the people around you might be really baffled but actually you can be finding all of these reasons why you know you're right they're wrong and you're actually um kind of powering your own downfall in some way um it's, you know, your intelligence isn't serving its purpose there to actually help you to live a better life.
0: This is fascinating, not just in the fact that it's really important to be able to recognize this in ourselves and our organizations, but even to make sense of the world. Like when you were talking about, you know, climate change denialists and, you know, a lot of these uh, polarizing political views that we realize now, the intelligence trap explains so much of that because A lot of the time, I think, when you see politicians talk and they argue so, um, you know, passionately for things that just seem completely baffling to us, you think, well, you just must be lying or, like, there's something else in it for you, but potentially maybe, you know, I've no doubt that that does happen, but potentially maybe the intelligence trap is a huge explanation for that.
1: Yeah, that was my impression looking at this research is that... you know, I don't think these people are acting in bad faith, but I think there are lots of reasons why we become attached to a certain political position. Mm. And then once we do become attached, and especially if socially it's very important for us, if all the people around us share that view, that emotional investment becomes even bigger. And it's like a gravitational pull that kind of warps our reasoning, you know, to defend that. Because if we had to, to question this kind of core belief, like we might start to see that our whole worldview would start to crumble, it would like Mm. kind of leave a big gap in our worldview, and you don't have anything to replace it. Um, And then there's, you'd also have to worry about the social repercussions, you know, explaining your change of mind to the people that you really respect, and who've um, been, you know, important in your life and your career. So, you know, I think it's very easy to understand how this happens. Mm. Um, But yeah, it's also very problematic
0: yeah so interesting wow and and so dangerous too you know if we're not aware of this the consequences could be truly terrible so to explain this you have a great analogy where you say that intelligence is like a car can you explain that one to us
1: yeah yeah I mean this just made intuitive sense and we actually see it going back to someone like um René Descartes who basically said yeah I can't remember the exact words but he was like um, you know, your mental power can um get you to your destination uh more quickly, but only if you apply it correctly, otherwise it might lead you off course. And that's exactly how I see see intelligence with this car analogy. That intelligence is like the engine, it's you know giving you that kind of raw processing power. Um and we do know that you know, when you measure things like IQ, you know, you can see differences in the way the brain is processing information, it seems a bit more efficient. Um But like that, the way we test intelligence at the moment doesn't actually uh, check whether you're applying that in the best way possible. Mm. You know, these abstract questions that you might have are basically just looking at that efficiency of processing and the kind of abstract reasoning. Um, And so what I argue is that actually, you know, you don't just have a car with like a really powerful engine, but you also need all of those other things to make sure that you can drive safely. So, you know, good steering, uh, suspension, brakes, um, and, you know, something like a GPS system to help you to kind of navigate your way around all of the obstacles. Um, uh, and, you know, that's what we need the equivalent for um, to apply our intelligence correctly. We need um, uh, these other kind of traits and abilities and dispositions that will make sure that um, we don't just go speeding off a cliff with our intelligence, um, believing in something totally irrational, but that we actually uh, can manage to apply it in the wisest way possible.
0: Mm, that actually makes sense and I want to get into some of the um ways in which we can like check ourselves and our organizations in a little bit um but before we get to that can you tell me about the research behind the intelligence trap how it operates and why it is uh you know such a problem
1: yeah sure so I mean you know for uh, about a century almost exactly a century um scientists had been you know, measuring intelligence through IQ tests, which are those, you know, uh, they look at things like memory, um, you know, your vocabulary, also your nonverbal reasoning. Um, it's very common. So you might have those uh, kind of almost like equations using shapes and you have yep, to yep. notice the kind of pattern, you know, be able to rotate a cube, which shows your kind of spatial reasoning, all of these kinds of things, which, um, you know, they we know they measure something important about Um, the brain because actually people who score more highly on an IQ test are more likely to do well in education it's not a perfect correlation by no means so actually people with lower IQs can do much better academically you know if they apply themselves in the right way but there is a correlation there and I wouldn't deny that Um, but they just hadn't looked at things like rationality so you know, this is where the research over the last 20 years has really gone. Um, We know from people like Daniel Kahneman that humans are susceptible to all kinds of cognitive biases. Um, That could be something like anchoring, which is where, you know, if you're going to buy a house and the estate agent shows you um, a more expensive house to start with, with an astronomical price, Um, that kind of anchors your thinking. So you're more likely to make a higher offer for another house that's um that's you know objectively less expensive um so it's this kind of thing um similarly with framing um that's when you can uh, see the same information phrased in two different ways and it kind of changes the way you perceive it so the example i think most of us come across is if you see a food that's 95 percent fat free it sounds really healthy whereas if it said it was five percent fat you might think twice about eating it so you know, we know that humans in general are very susceptible to these biases. Um, But the researchers were really looking at whether some people are more susceptible than others, and if intelligence um, is a protection against that. And, you know, you'd hope that with all that extra processing power, intelligence would be the perfect protector, that it would be a perfect correlation between uh, being rational you know, not suffering from these biases and being intelligent. Um, but that's not what they found at all. Actually, there's, a, you know, very big chunk of people who um, are very susceptible to biases, but have high intelligence. And uh, the researchers called that state uh, dysrationalia, which is a bit like dyslexia, because it's a kind of isolated problem with your um, the way you're processing information rather than a kind of general um kind of learning difficulty across domains. Um, So that's one element. Then there was, you know, like I said, this research on motivated reasoning, which very much had focused on these political issues and conspiracy theories. You know, the idea that uh, Barack Obama was not born in the US, for example. You know, they'd looked at all of these things and they'd found that actually intelligence doesn't protect us against those conspiracy theories. It actually fuels them often. there's also work on uh, this phenomenon called earned dogmatism, which is another aspect of the intelligence trap. And that is kind of an intellectual arrogance. And it's like you reach a certain mm. level of expertise and you you just stop. Uh, you think you kind of know everything. And you, so you stop listening to new opinions, new information. You feel like you've earned the right to have very strong opinions. Um, and so... I think you know we see that in politics a lot. You see it in political pundits. There was Philip Tetlock's famous um, test of political pundits, where he'd asked them to predict, you know, geopolitical events over years. And some of these people were consistent, even though they were very well respected. They might have columns in newspapers, regularly appear on the TV as experts. They were consistently. Um, less accurate than random so you could have flipped a coin and you'd have got a better result than for these people um and that was because they were so attached to their particular theory that they were applying it to everything and they weren't actually using any of the evidence available to kind of modify and update their ideas um so those are just a few kind of elements of the uh, intelligence trap um Uh, But, you know, I think together they can really explain so much of what we see around us. So, you know, these people that we know, like you mentioned, people like Kerry Mullis, Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, um, I, I felt like actually the whole world started to make a lot more sense when I came across this research.
0: Yeah, I can, I really get that. You know, when we were talking just before about politics and, you know, some of those extreme views that people can have, it really explains it way more effectively than just going, oh, well, they're just idiots, you know, or well, they're exactly. just trying to prove <laughs> yeah. a point, you know, it makes way more sense. Yeah. And so in the book, you also talk about dual process theory, and that's one of the elements as well that explains the intelligence traps. Can you explain that to us?
1: Oh yeah, so that um again is kind of uh Daniel Kahneman kind of used this in his book Thinking Fast and Slow. Um it actually originated, I think, with the um this guy, Keith Stanovich from Canada, who did a lot of this work on dysrationalia. Um mm. so you know, the two have basically, I think, um, both inspired each other in lots of different ways. But yeah, this this theory is that we, you know, broadly we have two modes of thinking. There's the kind of fast thinking um that's very intuitive emotional but also prone to bias and then there's the slow thinking which is um more methodical more kind of analytical deductive you know where you're really thinking slowly through a problem and balancing the information um and what we see is that uh you know you'd hope the intelligence would push you in that direction. But the work on dysrationalia really shows us that actually, that's not the case at all. You you might apply your academic kind of abstract intelligence, you know, that's measured with an IQ, you might be very good at applying that in the exam hall, because you know, that's how you have to apply it. But in everyday life, when you're reading your Twitter feed and coming across fake news, you might still go with your intuitive, uh, fast thinking method. So you might just kind of something sounds like it should be right. And then you believe it, you share it, you become invested in that.
0: That's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think we all know those people who are what we would call book smart, but then have no street smarts and who are super gullible and get sucked into all kinds of things. I think that dual process Hmm. theory really explains it so well. And the other one that you talk about is the sunk cost fallacy. And we've talked about this on the show before, the sunk cost fallacy. But I think this is a really relevant thing for people to be aware of because I've, I used to fall foul of this all the time. Can you tell me about the sunk cost fallacy?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I find this one really interesting because there's yeah. just um, there's no correlation within, in the kind of tests of rationality, no correlation with intelligence at all. Right. So it doesn't protect you in any way. And I think, in fact, you know, in certain situations, your intelligence would by letting you rationalize your thinking, it you could actually exaggerate it. Um, but yeah, the sunk cost fallacy is when you you've made some investment in you know a new project. It might just be that you spent loads of time or money, mm-hmm. um, but it's failing, and you can see that it's gonna keep on failing. Like um, for whatever reason, like it's just it's only gonna cost you more and more of your resources that you're never going to get back. Um, mm. You know, the classic example um, kind of in Europe was the Concorde project, which was yeah, yeah, massively yeah. expensive but never made a profit, but they just kept on pouring more more money into it. Um, and, you know, I can understand that because you don't want to cut your losses, you don't want to admit defeat, but it is irrational because it's actually those resources that you could be saving if you finished the project could be better spent elsewhere. Um and yeah, people who are highly intelligent, they just don't seem to recognise that any more than someone with a much lower IQ. And like it's I said, free- actually, I think you could then, if you fell for that motivated reasoning as well, it could actually make you even like more likely to hold on to it in certain personal circumstances.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think, um, I don't know whether this was so- something else that you came across, but potentially these people who are... Um, you know, so creative in terms of like thinking outside of the box, like you th- you thinking about Arthur Conan Doyle and the things that he came up with, they were incredibly uh, bold new ideas and the guy who came up with the COVID testing system, like you've got to be able to think in ways that are completely different to what people have thought about before I wonder, I don't know, do you think that that kind of plays into it? You know, if you are that intelligent in terms of creativity and new thinking, potentially you can believe things that seem outside of the realm of possibility for other people.
1: Yeah, I do think that is a possibility. Um, And I think that is also like when, because you still have people, you know, I get regular messages from people saying, Like, how dare you criticise Kerry Mullis? He won a Nobel (laughs) Prize and you're saying that. But the fact is that if we look at the evidence, like we know HIV is causing AIDS. It's like, we know that when you reduce the viral load of HIV, people live a lot longer. Like it's, you cannot, there's no way around that. So he was wrong. Like as far as I'm concerned, there's no way he could have been right. Um, But like... But people are are like, well, he was just, you know, he was seeing things that other people weren't. It was, you know, we need mavericks like him. And I think actually we do kind of need, you know, people who are willing to kind of go against the grain because, you Mm. know, sometimes they are right. And, you know, they do help to, um, you know, they they help to kind of uh, make us explore other avenues that we wouldn't have seen before. Um, But, you know, I think like, Ideally, these people would have these kind of outlandish ideas, but then when people kind of argue against them, they might then consider those arguments more seriously, and they would themselves come around to the more rational way of, of viewing these situations. so yeah, I think it's you know having um a kind of left field view of the world is definitely useful, but I think you you have to make sure that um it doesn't uh lead you too far astray. There's a a kind of phrase that I love, which is that it's important to have an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. And I think that's the problem uh, with some of these people that I talk about in my book.
0: Nice. I like that (laughs) phrase. Check your glowing (laughs) raccoon at the door. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Amazing. Um, So, you know, clearly this is a huge blind spot for so many people, and I'm sure I've fallen foul of it in the past, so I'm not sure I'm intelligent enough to qualify, so potentially that's one benefit. But how can we start to overcome the intelligence trap? How can we check this in ourselves?
1: Mm. yeah i mean that was what i loved about researching this book is that actually there are loads of ways that you can do that um okay now one thing that um you know that i think is really protective against all of these intelligence traps is um curiosity uh genuine Mm -hmm. genuine intellectual curiosity um just that love of finding out new information and what the research shows is you know of all of these kind of highly charged political issues whereas intelligence kind of drives people's thinking apart um, and makes them more polarised. The opposite is true with the um, measures of curiosity. So just how likely people are to kind of pick up a a scientific magazine that's on the table, listen to a scientific podcast, you know, anything like that, you know, and you can ask them direct questionnaires that also measure just how much do you like learning new stuff. Um, Mm. And what you find is that when people are more curious – they're less likely to fall for motivated reasoning. And the reason for that is just that they're not so defensive. When they find a fact that kind of contradicts their point of view, they don't have that impulse to immediately discount it because they want to understand it. They want to probe deeper to, you know, see where that actually fits, like where the idea comes from and how it could fit with the other evidence that they know. And so that helps them to come to this more, you know, rational view of the world. Um And, you know, curiosity is something that we can all cultivate. I think as adults, we often just don't allow ourselves to be curious enough because we, you know, it's been kind of trained out of us often in education and then in our jobs, you know, you've got other things that are more important than following your interests. But we can just try Mm. to make that a bigger part of our lives and our outlook. Um, But there are other kind of simpler techniques too that I find very useful. And one of them is this process called self distancing. Um, and what that does is it just pushes you, it creates um, a bit of detachment from whatever you're considering. So you you still recognise what your emotions are, but they just don't guide you so strongly. It's like weakening the pull on your reasoning. Um, there's lots of ways to do that. If you're thinking about a personal problem, you might imagine um, talking it through with a friend who's facing the same problem, so you might even use the third-person language. Like, you know, I might start saying, "Oh, David, like, you know, you really need to consider this factor." And, you know, just um, it sounds, you know, a bit a bit odd, but actually, this is an ancient rhetorical technique that's been used, you know, since the Roman times. And and what we now know is that it can actually improve your thinking. Um, if you're considering like some kind of political issue, it can also just be useful to t- to try to take the a viewpoint of someone who's you know totally detached from that issue so in one experiment they were looking at people's um, reasoning about the US elections and they asked them to try to consider like what would someone from Australia or Iceland think of that particular uh, think about these politicians and their policies and they found that people were more open-minded more willing to kind of consider points of view that they wouldn't have previously so again it was weakening the motivated reasoning.
0: Yeah, there's so much to it. And and the other thing that you talk about is um, mental time travel. I really like this one.
1: Uh, Yeah. So you can also, um, I think in our careers, this can be really useful is to kind of put yourself in the future and imagine yourself looking back, you know, on this kind of problem or crisis or difficult decision that you're uh, considering. So just, yeah, imagine like in 10 years time, 20 years time, like, what would I think of this? And again, Mm. that gives you this detachment, it puts the problems in perspective, you know, something that seems like a huge crisis might not actually be that important in the grand scheme of things. Or alternatively, you might realise that, you know, this is the decision you really should take, but your fear is holding you back. And but when you look back and, you know, from 20 years hence, you're going to regret not having taken that decision. So yeah, again, I find that really useful just to help me to um, see the bigger picture rather than getting bogged down in these details and falling for that emotionally charged, motivated reasoning
0: yeah I think that's so useful for every aspect of life, right? I really like that thinking is and um, like you know when you're making a big decision or you've gotten riled up about something thinking, will this matter tomorrow? will this matter in a week? Will this matter in a year and it's so, right. it's a game changer yeah and um, you you t- I suppose all these skills kind of tie into this, but you talk about doing a cognitive autopsy, which sounds really fancy, but it's very common sense, right.
1: Right, exactly. And that is, yeah, it's similar, I guess, to this mental time travel. But um, mm. this is like before you're embarking on a project or making a decision. Um, uh, well, oh, wait, yes, yeah, no, there's two. So this is a pre-mortem that I'm describing. I'll get to the cognitive <laughs> <laughs> autopsy. And, yeah. Love it. and <laughs> the pre-mortem is actually just pre-empting, like, if it goes wrong, why will it go wrong? Um, again, it's helping to kind of counteract some of those biases that's is pushing you more towards that um slow thinking uh you know deductive analytical way of using your brain um Mm. the cognitive autopsy is kind of the opposite it's like once you've made a mistake just go through your thinking process and work out, like, why did I fall for that? So what biases led me to make that decision? Um, And again, I just think that's training you for the future to be more aware of how you might have been led astray by these attractive, intuitive ways of understanding the world that maybe aren't so rational.
0: I guess this is, you know, a lot about um, self-reflection, right? Being able to take an analytical look at ourselves and what we do, that is so valuable in combating the intelligence trap and I think maybe is something that we really lack right now and um, mm. I think you know when we're used to trying to uh, I don't know prove or say how good we are on the internet to actually be able to analyze yourself seriously um it's quite a hard thing to do
1: yeah no it is and you know I feel like these ideas have been around, you know, since Socrates who mm. celebrated intellectual humility, which I think is a big part of avoiding the intelligence trap is to just be able to accept there are things I don't know. There might be different scenarios that I haven't considered yet. Um, my no- own knowledge might be flawed. Um, and also, you know, Socrates spoke about the importance of examining your life and self-reflection. And mm. you know, I think we're really beginning to see now what happens when you know, people don't do that, like you said, on social media, we're not rewarded for being reflective as much as, you know, saying what we know we have to say to get more likes. Um, Mm. And I think that's the power of the uh, cognitive, the self distancing techniques that I mentioned, because they do promote that more um, uh, kind of rational self reflection, and they stop you um, falling into the trap of kind of ruminative thinking, you know, where you can You know, we might we might try to self reflect, but actually, all we might do is reinforce our biases. But what self distancing does is it makes sure that doesn't happen because it broadens our perspective and allows us to, you know, pick apart the different elements of our thinking more objectively.
0: Yeah. And I guess, you know, a lot of those tools on the outside, when we first hear them might seem like um, they're asking us to be really harsh on ourselves. But I guess it works in the same way, you know, if you kind of lean towards that negative thinking, and in a kind of that pessimistic view, if you really are able to use these skills and start to use a much more analytical viewpoint on everything in your life, that's got to be a benefit, right?
1: Oh, it is. Yeah, because yeah. actually, you know, the intelligence trap can also make us more fearful. You know, yeah. more cautious. Needlessly, it can. You know, we can use things like uh, motivated reasoning. Could also make us. Um, you know, it could be powering these kind of um, kind of harmful views of ourselves too. Um, yeah. And having that detachment is going to help to break that. So, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it can all be combined with self-compassion. You know, if you're doing like a cognitive autopsy, going through the um, the kind of errors that you made um, in the lead up to a decision, you don't have to be harsh to yourself or punish yourself for that. In fact, I think the opposite should be the case, is that you should be kind to yourself and recognise that actually, you know, these are common reasoning errors that lots of people um, suffer from. But you, also accepting that you can learn from your mistakes and that you can improve and that actually, you know, we can all go on that kind of positive learning curve.
0: I just love that. I absolutely love that. So we know how to tackle this within ourselves if we've noticed that this is a problem within our organization which I guarantee you know of some job that you've worked or someplace that has this problem what do we do about if it's rife in our organization
1: yeah I mean you know I worked at the BBC so I think like um you know if anyone's watched um the sitcom W1A um which (laughs) kind of depicted the kind of silly uh decision making in the BBC I think they'll understand that Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, I talk about kind of functional stupidity within an organisation. And this is because actually, in the short term, uh, organisational cultures can evolve that discourage uh, critical thinking, they discourage, Mm -hmm. um, you know, people asking questions, kind of probing errors, because um, in the short term, that can seem like a waste of time. And it can actually uh, be, uh, you know, kind of more productive to just kind of get on with what you're doing without... um, without distraction. Um, but then the problem is that, you know, errors can build up. And what I show in my book is that, you know, uh, common biases become rife within the organisations to the point that you have uh, disasters like Deepwater Horizon or the fall mm-hmm. of Enron or the Challenger disaster um, with NASA. So, you know, we really, um, it really should be like within an organization's interest to actually um, promote more, open-minded, uh logical, detective thinking within the organizations. And I think, you know, one of the things they can do with that is to reward whistleblowers. Um, that we actually need people who are gonna raise really difficult questions about the way we're operating and they should be yeah. taken seriously rather than being ignored or even punished in some cases. You know, so that is one thing that we have to do. We have to and we have to avoid that um uh you know that kind of philosophy of bring me solutions not problems uh kind of overly positive corporate cultures um because actually you know often there aren't going to be immediate solutions that's something that you have to work with um work uh, together to achieve um but someone you know raising the problem that should be encouraged um so yeah these are all things that we can do um i think a within organisations to to encourage this. Um, just more generally in our own careers, I think always kind of looking beyond your own expertise can be useful and getting the uh, viewpoints of other people who maybe don't work directly in your field, because often that, you know, people on the outside, you know, they're not so entrenched in the, the ways that you're operating, they might be able to see these errors that you're completely blind to.
0: Yeah, I think that is absolutely true. And the the one of the things that you suggest if we're not like the boss or we're not high up in the organization and we don't feel like we have a huge ability to change is just to start operating in this way ourselves. And it, it kind of is contagious, right?
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, I think that's especially something like humility, um, showing intellectual yeah. humility, admitting your own mistakes. Um you know, once one person in a team has been able to do that, I think it does give other people the courage to be similarly humble. And that's what you want to avoid the intelligence trap is for everyone to be able to um, open up about the their kind of limitations rather than kind of having this bluster and trying to prove their intelligence all the time and cover up their errors. So, uh, yeah, I definitely feel very strongly that for anyone in an organisation, that's important. But, you know, especially like we should really be looking at that you know, from from the people at the top. So if you're even if you're managing a small team, I think it's really useful for you to be able, to be able to show your humility to encourage the people below you to do the same.
0: Yeah, I love that. And we had um Dr. Daryl Van Tongeren, who's like the leading expert in radical humility, on. And mm. that's exactly what he said. He said, just start, and he also said that it transforms everything every relationship in your life and it will be absolutely revolutionary i'll also link that in the show notes so you mm. can go back and have a listen to that um is there anything else that we should know i mean we've covered a lot of ground here but is there anything else that we should really know when it comes to the intelligence trap
1: um hmm. uh there's just one technique i think that really sticks in my mind that i haven't covered but can be you know really useful it's been very well researched you know since the 1980s but still i don't think is like widely applied and that is um it's called considering the opposite and again it increases your intellectual humility and just helps you to account for some of your biases and uh put simply you just in whatever you're doing you just try to you just ask yourself well what would you know what would happen if I'd come to the opposite conclusion or you know uh so that it could be you know even some personal problem, like, um, you know, if you're considering moving abroad or not, you know, you might try to imagine, well, what would happen if I do the opposite of what my gut is telling me to do? Um, that can be hugely useful, but also, like, you know, when you're appraising information about politics or for something your career, you might read a report and think it's very convincing. But you can ask yourself, like, would I still think that the logic of this is so watertight and sound if it had come to the opposite conclusion? Or would I have identified, you know, all of these kind of gaps and flaws in the argument um, if it had said the opposite, come to the opposite conclusion? And conversely, you know, if you're instantly dismissing some kind of new report or document, ask yourself, well, like, if it supported my point of view, would I have been kinder uh, to it? And again, I just think that is improving what um, psychologists would call your rationality quotient. You know, it's Mm. just making sure that you're using your intelligence to, um, to think you know, more open-mindedly and in a more balanced way about what's put in front of you and about the decisions that you're making.
0: I really love that. And one of the things that strikes me about all of these, um, you know, tools for avoiding the intelligence trap is that we have to give ourselves the time to think about these things. And I think, you know, we're constantly and it's so distracted. I know I'm permanently trying to do like 10 things at once all the time. But one of the things I've started to doing that, to do that makes huge difference is... Um, on the times when you normally go on your phone, like when you go to get a coffee and you're waiting five to 10 minutes for your coffee, don't go on your phone and your mind will automatically go to these problems or the things that are coming up. And it just gives you so much more time to reflect and potentially avoid this intelligence trap too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think just kind of, Using slight delaying tactics, you know, in all of your decisions can be really useful. You know, if you're taking on a new work project, just, well, if someone's asked you to take on a new work project, rather than giving an immediate answer, just say, can I think about it and get back to you tomorrow? And that will stop you going like with your impulsive decision and just help you to get that distance that you need. So, yeah, I really think that's essential uh, just like you said to give us time to employ that kind of slower means of thinking about it, different issues
0: yeah i really love that such a great point thank you so much david i really appreciate you having a chat with us it's always fascinating gonna need you to write another book so you can come on <laughs> i've got to get you back because you always blow my mind when you come on
1: <sighs> no i would love that yeah it's been a real pleasure thanks so much for the great questions
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. David Robson is an award-winning science journalist and his book is called The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes. I will link it in the show notes as always and I'll also link the episode to uh, david's other episode that he did with us about the expectation effect which is mind-blowingly cool if you think positive thinking is woo-woo and a load of bs you have to listen to this episode because it, i guarantee it will change your life and the book is even more phenomenal phenomenal because there is just so much to it I am so grateful to you all for listening. Don't forget, if you want to support the podcast, you can join my Patreon. There's membership options for as little as $5 a month. You get extra community, you get extra episodes and a whole heap of other great stuff. So you can join in the show notes. Check it out. I will be back again next week. Thank you so much for joining me. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave me a review wherever you're listening. It really helps other people find out about what we're up to with our little self-improvement club. I'm Ed Star, and I sincerely hope that's helpful.